You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I guess it's good evening for us. Good morning to you. It should be, what, about Monday at 6 a.m. if you're one of the first ones in line to uh, listen to the show. So We're coming to you from the past. I, uh, we're we're going to be drinking something else, but I hope you're drinking some coffee or something if it's uh, that <laughs> early for you. Uh, the hope, hair of the dog. <laughs> hope everybody's uh, having a good start to their week. I want to give a shout-out to NewCloud Interactive Maps for sponsoring the show. You can visit them at newcloud.com slash drunken ux i am your host michael feenan and on the other mic this squirrely guy i'm aaron hill he's aaron hill I have less less beard than michael uh yeah i have a little bit more every week uh people are starting to notice believe it or not so <laughs> they're starting to notice you and not the beard i've i've progressed <laughs> from uh that phase where you just look perpetually homeless to well respected like there's there's this line. You have a really good looking beard. Oh, you need to shave. Oh, did you lose your job and house and live on the street for a while? To oh, you are a well respected gentleman, aren't you? It's the, the uncanny valley of facial hair. If you guys want to check us out, you can swing by Facebook or Twitter. We are slash Drunken UX, or stop by the site if you want to chat with us on Slack. You can hit us up at drunkenux.com slash slack and that'll just shoot you straight into our channel because we know how to use redirects aaron what do you got for us tonight on your uh in your glass on your glass i'm going classic with a tangerine tonic it's a family drink yeah i like how you say it's it's a family drink as if a gin and tonic is not a thing that has already been invented (laughs) no it's specifically tangerine like my my family on my mom's side only drinks That's I only drink other things too, but for gin, they only drink Tangerine. I only get to say this once, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use it here. But the Hill people, they were the ones who invented <laughs> gin and tonics. Uh, I am drinking uh, Scotch because, yep, uh, Oban fourteen, uh, one of mm. my all time favorites. It's a West Highland Scotch. Um, it's a very light, grassy. Uh, smooth, like it's it's like my favorite anytime scotch. Like there is no hmm. like if I want to have a glass of scotch, there is no point that Oban is not a good grab. Um, something like you know if I think about like a a, a Macallan um or a Lafroig or something, you know these really strong heavy scotches. You know those are only good sometimes. Um, but Oban just it's so even and consistent and enjoyable for me. So hmm. uh, that's that's what we got tonight. I am getting started drinking it with a little bit of ice, just a hair. I've got one I got one of those giant ice cube makers, so we drop one of those in there and <laughs> we get going. Hey, I w- I want to make sure we let everybody know uh in today's episode. Guys, we are web developers. We are not lawyers. No, we're not. Um, and I, we, we want to emphasize that because uh, we've got we're we're gonna start the show out by chatting just real quick about GDPR, and then we're gonna launch into some copyright and software licensing 
Uh, it's a bunch of legal stuff. A bunch of legal stuff. And we will do our best to be accurate, but we reserve the right to be wrong. Um, and we mm. want to make sure if we get something wrong and you catch us or you want to contest something we said, um, please, please, please drop by the comment section or you know Facebook, Twitter, Slack, whatever. Let us know so that we can make sure to issue a correction if any of this is in is not entirely in line. Um, and none... None of this should be considered legal advice. No legal advice. Like and no, yeah. our experience is only in the U.S., so you know, copyright laws mm-hmm. are different in the EU, in, uh, in Russia, in India, you know, wherever you, know, you, you might be listening. So our advice is coming with a very American slant. Um, so you'll have to forgive us on that, but it's the way life goes. Hey, it's GDPR Day. GDPR, that's good dogs pet regularly. Um, nice try. We're gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give you a pass on that one for not knowing what it actually is. Um it is the Ge- general data protection regulation. Now, we've mentioned it uh, passingly on other episodes. Uh there it's pro- popped up a couple times on real time overview. Uh I think everybody by this point is familiar with all of the privacy policy updates that you've been getting in your email. Um, so many. So, so many. Um, and I want to just comment on that real fast because while it's funny to make the joke about, you know, students turning in their homework at the last minute, most of these companies, <laughs> even if they had the work done six months ago, there was no reason to send out the update until today. So yeah. I, I do give them a little forgiveness, though let's face it, most companies have been scrambling the last six months trying to get something in place because that's just the way business works. Mozilla had a, a funny thing about um about the GDPR that they they said it's uh, a floor, not a ceiling. Um, they they see the GDPR as like this is the bare minimum. This is like this is the fifteen percent tip of of data protection laws that and they say that uh you should be making policy as a company you should be making policies that are in this direction but should not be limited to just the gdpr guidelines which is insane because if you followed uh gdpr at all this has been two years in the making um this law was passed in uh, 2016 in the eu i want to be very specific about that this is an eu law it's 351 pages long. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so no one in the U.S. legislation read it. So tell me, tip of the iceberg? <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, this is, uh, a lot of folks refer to this like as the right to be forgotten law. Um, it's, mm. it's designed, and I, I absolutely, in spirit, I, I believe in this. Privacy is absolutely important. Um, there's no question about that. You know, the idea that you should be able to delete your data off a website, you know, no question. Um, But this is so much bigger, I think. And that's where we run into some problems that, you know, this is sort of the definitive example of a highly, highly technical law written by politicians. Oh, God. (laughs) That's... You know, like, we shouldn't, like, we're not practicing law. Like, politicians shouldn't be practicing tech. (laughs) (laughs) 
So <laughs> the 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 catch to this is, and I made a a point of mentioning that. Um, well, who's been like, has this had any effect yet? I mean, it's only day one, so it's probably just smooth sailing right now. Nobody's made any snafus. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Um, so it's day one. Um, we're recording this on May twenty fifth. This is the day GDPR came into effect, and as I mean. I think everybody who's been following along has really expected, you know, and, and one of the things that I'm waiting on are like GDPR trolls. Like we have DMCA tolls, tolls, <sighs> trolls, patent trolls. You're going to have GDPR trolls. There's no doubt. Uh, um, but there have been some organizations chomping at the bit and, you know, day one, minute one, lawsuits are filed against Google and Facebook. They've had two years. How did they not? Though they did. They've done a shit ton to make sure they're GDPR compliant. But huh. again, I want to go back and emphasize 351 pages of law. Uh -huh. um, this idea that you are GDPR, GDPR compliant, that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. There's, it, it's kind of like accessibility. It, you okay. exist more along a spectrum than you do absolute compliance. And so these organizations have gone ahead and, and you know, uh, rolled up some lawsuits that would total, you know, if, if found against uh, them, would be something in the area of $9.3 billion on day one. So the, the GDPR allows fines of up to 20 million euros or 4% of revenue. Um, and that is specifically revenue, not profit. Not profit. Whichever one Whoa. is larger, not smaller. Oh, my God. Wait, so, so what, like, so Google and Facebook are getting fined because they're violating things in this right to be forgotten, making air quotes, because they collect a lot of user data, right? Yeah. And they're just, they're not doing a good enough job of being compliant with the 351 there's, pages. There's somewhere that, you know, it was found that, you know, they were either retaining something or they weren't asking permission in the right way. Um, you know, there's a lot in the law uh, that's very specific about consent how you give mm. consent to have your information used. Um, you know, it's no longer like there is no such thing as implied consent. You know, you have to give positive affirmative consent and you have to be huh. able to decline consent. And, you know, even huh. now a lot of places are using like cookie compliance, which is a whole cookie compliance is a separate law completely unto itself. That's mm. been around, um, but they're using that model. And a lot of those are things like, you know, yes, I consent to having cookies, learn more. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't a no, I don't consent <laughs> option. Um, or more. Like the company can, the, the website administrators can show up at your house in the middle of the night and like uh, cover you with bees. <laughs> <laughs> you consented. <laughs> so that's a problem. Um the so did the com did they not get like a grace period or anything? Uh, or was that the two years leading up to this? No, no, no. There, I I don't know about like a specific codified grace period. Um, you know, okay. I I I don't think the EU is eager to start fining people tomorrow. Um, okay. Now you do get when when you have a violation issued or reported, mm -hmm. um, you get thirty days to okay. to answer that. Um, and again, this I, I'm running a lot off memory here. It I'm pretty sure it's 30 days. It it may be 60. 
You get a period of time. There's a period of time. I'm almost positive it's 30 days, though. There's there's a lot of numbers. Like, it's 30 days to, uh, com- you know, to, to uh, comply with a, a request. It's 72 hours if you have a data breach. Um, you know, the 4% wow. revenue fine. There's uh, tons of numbers in, in all of this. Wow. Um, what drives me nuts, though, is the number of people in the U.S. who are just like, don't care. EU law, we're not going to worry about it. Um, it's, it's interesting because of this, you know, it, and it seems reasonable right on its face that you would say, well, yeah, it's an EU law. What do I care? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how does the EU enforce a law in the United States? And it's incredibly easy, believe it or not. As, really? Especially when it comes to uh, anything involving commerce. Uh, if you do oh, business in the yeah. EU, and now if you do business in the EU, if you have a presence there, that's one thing entirely because they literally can come to your door. But if you yeah. are in the U.S. and you are dealing with citizens in the or people in the EU, it doesn't have to be a citizen. Um, it has to be a data subject, which is just somebody inside the EU. Um, so you could be a data subject if you went to Europe, for instance. Okay. Um, but if they find you in violation there are trade laws in place that allow reciprocation of things like fines um we've had this for years with things like copyright enforcement and and trademark enforcement um there isn't any there is not a reciprocal arrangement for gdpr yet Mm -hmm. it could very well exist in the near future um and if that happens, we're going to be in a world of hurt in the U.S. because that means our trade regulators are going to get a fine from the EU and they're going to waltz up to your door and say, here you go. And you're going to say, but it's an EU law. And they're going to say, but it's also a U.S. law, sort of. <laughs> uh, so because Google and Facebook ostensibly have European presences. Yeah, Google and Facebook are just screwed getting... in general because they are in Europe. They have offices yeah. there. They exist as right. an entity. So they are on like a whole other plane in terms of responsibility. And that's true for Amazon. That's true for Twitter. That's true for any of these folks. Um, any kind of, if you run a business of any kind and you sell stuff there and you've got a distribution center or whatever, boom, you're on the hook. Um, Facebook recently shifted something like a billion user accounts or something like that from yeah. uh, data centers to a single data center in the EU specifically so that they were completely isolated from the United States accounts so that anything that would be subject to GDPR is itself entirely uh, siloed for them data-wise. I don't know what that... I'd be interested to see what that looks like uh, from a data model standpoint for them, but... um, A a lot of... And there there are U.S. companies that are kind of complying... But they're doing it in a way that, you know, a lot of folks kind of laughed at, but it's happening, which, you know, if, if you are an EU person uh, look, trying to look at anything from A&E, from Instapaper, um, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, History.com, <laughs> these folks have just shut down their sites to EU customers as of today. Wait, wait, LA Times and the Chicago Tribune have EU versions of their... Well, it doesn't have to be a version. They oh. have people from the EU that, I mean... LA Times yeah. is a huge news uh, yeah, magazine, that's true. Um, newspaper, rather. Uh, and they have just said that 
we don't have any interest in your business. And because we don't have, you know, whether it's the resources, time, interest, whatever their rationale is, um, mm-hmm. they're just saying, yeah, we're not going to do it. You, now, USA Networks, they did this. Uh, USA Today Networks, rather. Um, okay. They have offered up an, a completely alternative website that is an EU website that strips out all <laughs> e- the stuff that would track and do anything that could be EU today. <laughs> uh, be GDPR compliant. Oddly enough, somebody was testing on that site and they found out that by making that lighter, like non-tracking version of their website, they cut the size yeah. of their page down by uh, 90% and, oh and got, the, really? got the load time down from something like 50-some seconds to like 13 seconds. Holy shit. Yeah, the, the page loaded at 5.2 megabytes and uh, when they did the EU version, it was a little over 500 kilobytes. Oh my god. Alright, I start using my VPN to browse anything ever now. <laughs> and at the end of the day, and what I where I think I get really irritated though, listening to like US developers saying, Well, I'm not gonna care about GDPR, blah blah blah. Mm. I you don't like paychecks, I guess. <laughs> I mean What do you mean? If if you wanna get a job at any c- company of any size, you know, any reasonable size, they are concerned about GDPR. And if you aren't concerned about GDPR, you are just devaluing yourself out of spite. Hmm. You're cutting off your nose to spite yourself. It's a pain in the ass. It's, I mean, honestly, I think it's a bad law. I think it is a poorly written, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's one of those um, doing the right thing the wrong way. Right. You know, that's that's yeah. what I look at with GDPR. Like the, the way it has been implemented, the way it was written, the amount of ambiguity that's in it, the, you know, the amount of stuff that they have pushed off all at once, it, everything about it is just bad. And not to mention the fact that their regulators don't have funding. You know, they're understaffed. They have no idea how they're going to be enforcing it. Like it's a mess. Um, it is. So there's, so there's no, the enforcement isn't determined yet. Not really. Uh, huh. and, and there's no like proceed. There's like all the procedural stuff related to how different things get executed none of that exists it's not in the law it's being left up to the individual eu states to determine Hmm. you know what you know who they're putting in charge of it what their procedure is because you know it's this weird idea where they're the eu but every country is also sovereign and so they can do things how you know they're allowed to put in their own kind of stuff to that they have to follow the same rules but how they get to that point is kind of you know, up to them. Um, so wh- what does it mean, like, for developers? Like, what does this mean? Like, are do we need to worry about it? I, I think you need to be cognizant of what it entails. You know, there's been mm-hmm. a lot around WordPress and the 496 release that included a bunch of the privacy uh, feature, quote-unquote features mm-hmm. to allow you to do things like delete user accounts, request your data. Um, Mm-hmm. Data, data reporting, data mobility, and right to delete, um, and data minimization. Um, I've had some talks with some higher ed folks about this, and you know, if you've if you've got a university and you have a satellite campus in Germany with students, oh, yeah. and one of those students comes to you and says, "Okay, I want I I don't want you to know me anymore." Right. What do you do? And there, there's a I mean. 
and whether you're an employee, a student, you know, if you're somebody that is part of that system, there is the legitimate interest exception, which again isn't actually defined. It's just there. Mm-hmm. You if you can define legitimate interest, you can use it. And so, you know, you can say, well, you if you're a, a current student, we can't delete your stuff because we can't serve you if that's the case. You know, we, okay. Yeah. We need to know that. But what if they're a graduate? What right. if they're so done and out? Delete them from your alumni role. And so there is, again, a, a an exception for public interest. And you can, I think, make the argument in that case that we can't delete the record that the student was here because it is in the public interest mm-hmm. that we be able to say that they were a student here. Right, but then any other ancillary data. Right, because right, like if be you gone. are applying for a job and that job is trying to verify your education... Right. <laughs> you need to be able to say, oh, yeah, John Smith was indeed a student who graduated here next year. But right. that doesn't mean you have to keep their gender on file, their birth date on file, their social security mm-hmm. number on file, or, you know, whatever identifier on file. The classes they took, even in some cases, I would say their GPA, um, hmm. you know, and things like that. All you need – now, I – I may be oversimplifying that a little bit, but it's this idea of data minimization is a thing that is baked into GDPR. So you have to shrink your data footprint for that person down as small as you can, as yeah. quickly as you can, basically. Yeah. Um, so just basically, like, you're keeping most of the user's table, but deleting all of the relational tables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and... You know, it gets it gets real gnarly for, you know, someone like Amazon. You know, if I want to delete my purchase history and all of that, you know, mm. I have the right to ask them to do that at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, and we get into this argument to, uh, you know, a lot of uh, U.S. web developers don't realize IP addresses are considered personally identifiable information by really? EU standards. Wow. So, access logs. Oh, man. Now, obviously, you have to have a way of connecting all this. The user has to be able to say, this is my IP address. I need you to delete it. And one thing I'm interested to see is verification. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm an EU data subject and I put in a request because of my IP address, how do I prove that that was my IP address to the company at that point? Yeah. Um, there's an interesting sort of catch on that particular piece of, of information, at least. Um, there's been discussion, and I think we, we had Jeff Chandler on the show a few weeks back, and I, I think it was their uh, WordPress Weekly podcast they were talking about this, that you know if you make a request, mm-hmm. that creates a data trail. Yeah. So if you email somebody, now that email is out there on file somewhere. So if you're requesting your stuff be deleted... But have you captured the request as well, you know, ancillary yeah. to that, especially if it's through a separate process? Like, it, I mean, it, it's a god-awful mess. It is, it is genuinely a god-awful mess. I'm interested in the lawsuits. I mean, the lawsuits are mm-hmm. going to tell all. Um, oh, yeah. Especially in the U.S. where the first time uh, a, a complaint is raised and the company says, screw it, I don't care, there's a lawsuit coming. And mm-hmm. that's going to tell a story because I, I definitely think that with the administration that we have in power right now in the U.S., 
I think they will be very antagonistic towards the idea mm-hmm. of allowing the EU to find a U.S. company. Uh, yeah. But what happens in four years if that changes? So the, so the GDPR is an EU law, not a U.S. law. Yes. But there is reciprocity between the two groups. Not nations, but... There could be. What is the EU? (laughs) It's not a nation. It's a conglomerate of nations? They they are a a united group of nations, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that is. (laughs) There there isn't any kind of reciprocity in place now. Okay. But there could be at any point. There's nothing stopping it from existing. So as a U.S. citizen, the GDPR doesn't explicitly apply to us yet. No. Does does it happen in the reverse? If I go to an EU website, does that am I covered by the GDPR? Yes. Because because okay. so the, because they have to respect everyone because their data controller and data processor are located in the EU. Okay. okay. And I like I said earlier, if you flew to France and right. were using a computer there, you would be covered under so, that law. If I were to be using Facebook or Twitter in the U.S. and then I flew to Europe to an EU nation and I used it for an hour or something, could I then ask for all of my data to be covered by the GDPR or only from that hour? That's a good question. That would be a question for an attorney. And yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't. <laughs> okay. I, I would presume it would only cover the data that you generated during your time While I was there, there. But yeah. I guarantee you that nobody, you know, and oh, for all man. of their money and equipment, Facebook, Google, none of them necessarily are going to have that kind of granularity to yeah, do like window wipes or something weird like that. It's going to be all or nothing. Um, I can't imagine American business ever being okay with this because like making the user into the product to be resold to advertisers is like the bread and butter of yeah. U.S. internet magic. I say it's it is a very very stark contrast in principles, yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting. And and I I you know I don't want to chew up our whole 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 show time uh, with this. We we should do a very detailed show on this. Unfortunately, we didn't get one out before GDPR launches, but I think in a couple months it will be a good topic to come back and revisit once we've kind of seen how things have settled. Mm-hmm. And what is, you know, what is happening? What are the the consequences, both intended and not intended, I think are going to be very yeah. important. Right. So getting into uh, the, the, the meteor discussion for this evening, we wanted to talk a little bit about copyrights and licenses uh, for web development because... We've talked a lot about getting into web development and how you learn it and, and how, you know, you, you teach yourself stuff. But one thing that a lot of those processes won't tell you about or teach you about is who owns your stuff and what does that mean? You know, what yeah. does it mean when your stuff is out in the wild um, and part of a project or something like that? So, or if you put it up on GitHub or something. Yeah. And this has been brought up uh, somewhat by the Classics Act. Um, I was perusing some news and this caught my eye and I thought, you know, I'm going to, I want to talk about it. So here we are. It's Senate bill 2393. And this is a law. It doesn't apply to web developers, um, for the most part, but I want to 
talk about it because it does kick things off. So uh, current copyright law in the United States, and just to be clear before I get too far into this, code is a work of authorship. Graphics are a work of authorship. The okay. minute you create them, they are covered by copyright. So this applies to anybody that's writing this code, that's designing, you know, logos or graphics or whatever. So your your work, if you did the work before 1976, which I would presume involves nobody doing HTML, mm -hmm. just guessing, but could very much involve graphic designers um, at this point. You know, if you've been doing graphic design since the 70s, your work is covered for 95 years. Um, if it was so crazy, if it was done after 1976, it's your life plus 70 years. Oh my God. So if you design something when you were 20 mm -hmm. and you live to be 90, your work has a total protection of 140 years in that particular case. It's crazy. Um, so it's basically your life plus your kid's life. If you have any kids by and large. Yes. Yeah. Um, the new law, this Classics Act, is uh, suggesting that any digital broadcasts of musical creations, so this applies specifically to the music industry, um, they want those to be covered until 2067, retroactively applying to anything pre-1972 that is not already in the public domain. This means that certain pieces of music will have upwards of 144 years worth of copyright protection. This seems, uh, it seems weird. <laughs> yeah. But so thank what, Disney. Thank Disney for it. It's their fault. That's why yeah. we're here. So, like, Disney is a great example because, like, they, most of their flagship movies, the ones that we all remember as classics from when we were kids, like Snow White, Alice in Wonderland, um, another one any sleeping the, beauty any of the grim stuff yeah Th those were all uh you know prior art and yep. then disney did their version of it disney did their version of cinderella but cinderella as a story existed prior to that maybe a little darker the, the grim brothers were very uh macabre with their they used but... public domain work to create yeah. something new which you know there's nothing stopping that hell i do it I'm working yeah. on a couple plays right now that are based on really, really old plays. I don't yeah. have to ask. Um, right. It's, it's public domain. But they, what they did was they created a new thing, which the yeah. new thing is then copyrighted. And you can thank Sonny Bono for this first step because what was going to happen was Mickey Mouse, mm -hmm. as a creative authorship, was about to go into the public domain. And Disney said, oh, shit. We can't have that happen. <laughs> and so they started pushing for this first uh, copyright extension, which I think the Sonny Bono Act was like 20 years it added. Um, See, I might be remembering wrong. This is kind of a – I don't want to derail too much here, but this is kind of a problem with the, the difference between if you or I were to create a copyrightable work, like a photo or a picture or a writing or something. Uh, you know, we will eventually die someday and then it'll be seven years past that. But if a corporation creates a work, it's in their authorship. When when does the copyright end on that? Because corporations don't die until they're dissolved, right? So if you're not just an individual, if you are a corporation that is commissioning something or is mm -hmm. creating something yourself, um, 
that protection uh, as of, I think it was the 1998 update, um, extended it to 120 years after creation <gasps> or 95 years after publication. So if you create something and then you sit on it for a few years, whichever one of those ends earlier is going to be the one that, okay. that takes over for a corporation. Um, That's ridiculous. So... Yeah, it, it the Disney has a a an interest in ensuring that uh, Mickey Mouse never enters the public domain. But in yeah. doing this, what they have they've done because there used to be um, uh, prior to nineteen seventy six, there was a condition in copyright where you're and this is going to get into numbers. I don't remember all the specific <laughs> details of, but your your when your uh, registration ended in nineteen seventy six. Mm -hmm. You could reapply for an extension, and it it cost I think a dollar, uh, <laughs> if I remember right. It may it may not have cost anything. I think maybe the dollar thing is something somebody else has recommended. But it so was, do you, you do you care to apply? You had to yeah you had to reapply for an extension just to prove that there was somebody interested in actively maintaining. Because here's the thing: okay. something like ninety nine percent of all creative works have no commercial value past 10 years. Right. None. They yeah. completely drop off the face of the planet, but they get vacuumed up into all of this uh, coverage. So even though right. we have all this enormous, huge body of work that has no commercial value, it also ceases to have cultural value because it's not yeah. something that can be built on. And the reason this is a big deal and the reason why these extensions are frustrating is because in the Constitution of the United States, Congress is tasked with the power of protecting works for a limited period. And the phrase limited period is what is used, but not defined. Mm -hmm. So Congress gets to define right. what a limited period is. But we've reached a point that since 1976, copyright is effectively never-ending. Yeah. Well, it's never-ending. It'll never expire within our lifetimes. We, yeah, and... No we have yeah. no guarantee. Uh, Ruth, Gator, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in uh, her defense of uh, her decision, I think it was on, it was either on the, the Bono Act or the 1998 extension, I forget which. Mm -hmm. um, it would have had to have been the, the Extension Act, uh, said that she defended the lawsuit that was brought, mm -hmm. or, you know, the position that it was okay to have this, this extension because Congress would never do that again. There was no indication that they would be interested in extending it beyond that, and that this still constituted a limited period. But I can't help but disagree because yeah. ever since they have started extending these, there has they have done nothing but extend it and continue to protect all of these works every time the opportunity comes up. So it's it's a huge problem. It's something I've I've talked about in uh, in presentations. There was a. a a, a talk I had called Remixology that I've given countless times that I ran around the conference circuit with for uh, a couple years. You know, this is it's frustrating to me because it's not just a web thing. It is a cultural thing to me. It's how we put value back into our creativity. Um, mm -hmm. And it creates so much confusion because people don't understand what what is covered by copyright for how long, what's in the public domain, what isn't. Um, yeah. And, and then how, how fair use plays into all of that. Fair use is a, a ball of 
snakes all into itself yeah. that I don't even want to get into in this episode. <laughs> um, but in terms of web design, I mentioned your code is copyrighted. Your images are copyrighted. That happens the moment they're created. But you also get in, especially with web design, you get into mm -hmm. issues of trade dress, design patents, and trademark. And that's how we look at like the overall layout, colors, right. fonts, you know, how these things come together. Um, you know, if, if you use white swirly gig cursive font on a red background, Coca-Cola can sue you for a violation of their trade dress. Right. Because it looks like it. Because it looks like them. If you're trying to yeah. appropriate their brand to make you money, they can, they can sue you over that. Um, but these words are all easily confused and have very different meanings. You should register trade dress, but you don't necessarily have to. You can sue yeah. without a registered uh, uh, design patent for your trade dress. Um, trade dress kind of falls under trademark, kind of falls under patents. Design patents are hard to get in web because mm -hmm. prior art is everywhere. It's hard to make the case for a design patent when on, you know, on a layout when it's easy to show a layout that looks just like yours. Right. Um, we don't have any new ideas there really, you know, and, and you know, so you could argue somebody could, uh, you know, take out a design patent on something like parallax scrolling, for instance, mm -hmm. but they would have had to have done it when it got made. You can't do it now because now there's prior art for it, but that would right. have been you. There would have been uniqueness to that creation that could have been patented. Um, so it's, it all boils down to brand confusion, right? Like if I, if I make a, a stoner t-shirt called smoke a cola, and it's done in the white swirly font on the red background. That could create brand confusion with association with Coca-Cola and pot. Yeah. So and, they, and they would, they would defend it on that basis. Right. Yeah. And, and they would argue that they have that trade dress uh, mm -hmm. coverage on articles of clothing because sure. Coca-Cola makes shirts with their brand on it as well. Um, yeah, right. You know, if, if it's something that's totally out of, your air, like uh, when it comes to trademark, trademarks are very specific to industry. Um, right. So you can have like the same company name in two totally different industries. Oh, this is this is the thing that came up between Apple Records, which published the Beatles right. catalog, and then Apple, the computer company in the U.S. When iTunes, the store, iTunes iStore, what is it? The i iStore, App Store. I'm not a Mac user. I don't know. But <laughs> Clearly. whenever they started selling the musics on iTunes, um, I, I remember there being a lawsuit. I saw it on Slashdot or something between Apple Records and Apple Inc. in the U.S. over that because Apple Records had said for a long time they weren't going to they weren't going to like sue Apple Inc. over this. And let, because Apple wasn't in the music business, right. but now they are. They they were a computer company, right? And what would a computer have to do with music? You know, in, <laughs> know, right? in 1978, who cared about a little, you know, <laughs> bloop, 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 bloop. Sao Paulo or whatever, wherever they were based at that point? Uh, <laughs> Did you say Sao Paulo? I don't know. <laughs> Palo Alto. There we go. Palo Alto. <laughs> That's I. I was getting there. I was getting there. <laughs> I've got right. You just gotta, yeah. You gotta give me time. I gotta get the <laughs> the engine running here. Um, 
it's yeah it, it's all and, and this is where like i'm hesitant to talk too much you know because i yeah. i will talk myself into trouble i'm going sure. to say something that is wrong if i if i go too far on it but um it, needless to say you don't see people usually going after trade dress design patents mm-hmm. and, and things like that in web design because it's just not feasible um right and especially for small people like freelancers small agencies and stuff it's just not cost effective you know going through all of the paperwork the filing the the application fees um waiting on all of it mm-hmm. finding you know you know doing the research to make sure there's no prior art all this stuff mm-hmm. it's expensive that is an expensive process to go through that has very little value ultimately so 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 regarding that it's a kind of a funny thing that I guess not everyone knows about is that if you you make a photo of something, your dog or whatever, you own the copyright. You don't have to register anything for that. Putting it on record makes your defensible position more defensible. It it does increase the damages that you can claim. Yeah, but but it doesn't. It's not explicitly necessary. You, no. you automatically have a copyright by virtue of having made the thing. So there's a Twitter account called for exposure underscore TXT. And it's a collection of anonymized little text blurbs from various people who steal other people's creative works and don't understand how copyright works. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend reading it if you have blood pressure issues because it's just maddening um, and in dire need of justice porn. But but nevertheless, it's a, a great illustration of what not to do. Yeah, it's uh, it, I say it, it is a it's a hard line to walk. And as a responsible party, like if you are a web designer, um, and, and you deal with this, it's important to know like who is responsible, um, you know, for copyright issues in your design. If you're using those photos, um, mm-hmm. you could be sued. I mean, yeah. Normally, that doesn't happen. Uh, the worst case usually is that it comes down to just a settlement. Somebody will send you a letter, and I've had to do this with my photos. You send mm-hmm. a letter that says, hey, you're using a copyrighted work that is not authorized. Here is, yeah. if you pay this sum, you know, it's a ransom letter. But there yeah. is an accepted, like with photography, there's a highly accepted process that you use for that and, and what you should charge. Um, mm-hmm. And if the people pay it, then you just let them pay and go your separate ways because it's not worth going to court over if they'll just write you a check, right. you know? Right. But the thing is, if you do work for an organization and you use copyrighted material and then I go to that website and I see my photo there, I'm going to sue that company. I'm going to sue mm-hmm. the company who's has my photo up because they're the one infringing on my work at that point. Right. But they can turn around. It that culpability is it's a downstream thing. I'm gonna sue them, but then they're gonna turn around and come after you, right? And if because you, you got chose it, to put the photo up, right? Yeah. If you bought it from you know uh, a, a, a stock photo website, mm-hmm. and you get sued over it, then you can turn around and then go to the stock photo website, and they will be obligated to have like a release on file or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, the shit rolls downhill kind of thing, but you know, what's funny is when I, years ago when I worked at IU, um, we had used 
we had a license for like a music library of stuff. I think it was from Bluefish or something, something like that. And uh, we we had we had legal right to use this music, and we used it in a background of a YouTube video that we did back in like 2008 or something when YouTube was a baby. And they they had, YouTube had just launched their content ID thing, um, and uh, we we got a takedown notice from the company saying that we were using their copyrighted stuff, and it's like, dude, we we paid you already. <laughs> yeah, it's that gets into like DMCA stuff, which is a whole yeah. other ball of That's, of snakes, oh, which is my phrase for this evening. Uh, I, tell you, snakes. I tell you what, let's go get our glasses refilled. When we come back, we'll get into software licensing and, and open source projects and how your copyright plays into that and what you need to be thinking about. So stick with us. We'll be back in about 40 seconds. The Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Welcome back and thanks for sticking with us and Hello. I'm I always I try to come back in with some clever like like jazzy radio voice kind of thing Hello. and I I get halfway into it and I just don't know what to, to continue with. <laughs> hey, I do want to take a second though while we were out on break, oddly enough, like literally as I was uh, sitting here refilling my glass and email came through and I just want to let everybody know that if you are uh, subscribing to our podcast, we uh, just got approved for iHeartRadio. So you can listen nice. to the Drunken UX podcast now through iHeartRadio if that is your uh, area of choice. That's a that's a website on the internet. It is a uh, you know podcast slash streaming audio streaming. iHeart.com. I don't know. That's I don't. The letter, I don't the letter use it. I. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we do. We both use it. We love it, and that's why we got them to publish our podcast. I. I We're the best iHeartRadio. I don't. I'm not even gonna pretend. Hey, so I wanna <laughs> I wanna remind folks too. So we we talked about code and graphics. They are works of authorship, so they're covered by copyright. But there are a couple uh, exceptions. So first is works for hire. If mm -hmm. you are hired by an organization, generally your copyright belongs to them. Usually this is baked right into a contract. But if it isn't, it can be contested in a court as well. Um, yeah. But that is that's important to know and if you want to retain copyright you need to very explicitly state that in whatever contract you're using um because they will contest it other cuz i mean that's that is the traditional state of things if you are hired to make something for somebody else the somebody else owns it um at least that has always I, been my understanding the, the the scary situation i've heard of before and again prefacing that i'm not a lawyer here it, the one that I worry about as a developer is is if you write something on company time or on company computering, computering, <laughs> company computers, uh, 
you know, they could then ostensibly claim that as being their own copyright. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's yeah. important for employees, you know, and that's right. where we've seen this a lot, of course, is with, you know, teachers, mm-hmm. professors who do, you know, research work or whatever at a university. And then who owns that? Do they own it or does the university right. own it? Um, and that's, and especially because of academic freedom, like that's a huge, huge issue on something like that. But since we both worked in higher ed, I'm sure you've probably encountered this before, but if you do happen to make some kind of creative work, including code, um, there is typically a form that you have to fill out with the university, which basically gets them to preemptively say, we are not going to claim copyright on this yeah. product. Um, also outside of that, so where I want to get into is I've mentioned GitHub um, and, and open source projects. One thing a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you write code, that code is yours. You own it. It is copyrighted. If you make a pull request to fix a bug in an open source project, that's still your code. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually very, it's, in my experience, it's very rare for there to be any conditions placed upon that pull request. Mm-hmm. There is kind of a working man's agreement um, and understanding whether people know it's an understanding or not. But, you know, if you make a pull request, you are granting your code to be licensed under the license of the project. But that's not written down anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's not explicit. That's not explicit. And so some larger organizations and two that come to mind are SAP and Microsoft have started Mm -hmm. adding contributor-level agreements to pull requests. So if you make a pull request for the first time, Microsoft in particular, they have an actual system that will check your GitHub account against their CLA database and make sure that Mm -hmm. you have agreed to let them have your code and then use it. Mm -hmm. Um, SAP and Microsoft's CLA is, I think it's based on SAPs. Um, it's Mm -hmm. It's literally, it's a very basic text file that just says, hey, if you contribute code to our project, you are licensing that code to us under our right. license. We are allowed to distribute it. We are allowed to, you know, control it right. to a certain extent. Because um, the idea is, and you know, the absurdity of it is this idea of the poison pill. This this thing where you would contribute code, but then you would sue because the code's there. Because you'd say, well, yeah, I sent it to them, but I didn't know they would actually put it in. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, you did. But because of the technicalities of, of legalese, you could probably get away with it in some jurisdictions with the right lawyers mm-hmm. or right jury or, you know, whatever, um, you know, you might do it. So it's something to think That's about. Now, we're going to leave a link in the show notes to like SAP's CLA. And it's something I would encourage folks. If you run an open source project, it's something mm-hmm. I would consider adding to your toolbox along with your software license, because, it is, I think, important to make sure, even if, even if you're super casual, um, yeah. there, there's so much value in taking steps to protect yourself from bad players. And when it's free and takes no effort, you, you have no reason not to do that. Right. So getting into the software licenses side of things. Now, software licenses, as with any license, basically sit on top of copyright. They are designed to, mm-hmm. whereas copyright is intrinsic, and conveys ownership licenses allow you to distribute and grant rights yeah it covers that it covers the how you use it right right so that you don't have to have that handshake every single time somebody wants to do something um my personal favorite is 
and I don't use it much for coding, but I use it pretty much everywhere else as Creative Commons. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what Welcome. it is, you should. Um, it's a very simple way of taking something you've created, whether that's written, photos, software, anything else, and saying, I've made this. It's out there. You don't have to ask me about it. As long as you give me credit, you can use it. Or or, or not give credit. Or not give, and, yeah, you can, yeah. You can have it be out there. And it has an attribution license, which uh, allows you to give credit. You don't have to include that. That's kind of the same as public domaining it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of controversy over this idea of putting things in the public domain and then retracting that. Um, that's an interesting discussion unto itself. But um, <laughs> Creative Commons lets you, you know, define, you know, if, if people can modify it if they have to include it under a, the same license, if they can use it for commercial or non-commercial use. It's mm-hmm. it's very similar in many ways to like uh, the GPL, but I find it to be much simpler. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a much, much simpler uh, piece of, of uh, licensing to understand, but it is something, something I don't see much in, in software. Something I really like about the Creative Commons is that it, the properties are distilled down to very simple acronyms. It's like CC-BY-NC-SA, which means Creative Commons, you have to give attribution, you have to share a like, so it has to carry this license, and you can't use it for commercial purposes. That's one configuration. As a web designer, you're going to run into this all the time if you're looking for mm-hmm. photography to use right. as something. And um, I, well, we do that all, all the time. Um, if you go to drunkenux.com and look at any of our uh, episodes, um, the, the main show episodes where we have the photos in the header, those mm-hmm. are all open attribution Creative Commons photos that we, I go on Flickr and I use, they've got a licensed search on Flickr. That's one thing Flickr did awesome. Go in there and you can just say, yeah. I need photos that I can use without attribution and commercial use. Um, or with, I mean, I, I have no problem giving attribution. It's mainly, you know, the, the commercial aspect of it, making sure I can use it for that. But um, it, it allows me to know that I've been given per- implicit permission then to do whatever is happening there. Um, now, there's... There are tons and tons and tons of software licenses, but the mm-hmm. the main ones you'll run into are either you know GPL or LGPL, uh, the mm-hmm. MIT license, the Apache license, or the BSD license. Right. Those four and a half to five. I GPL LGPL kind of go together, but um, the MIT license is the one that defaults on GitHub, right? I believe like so. GPL. Yeah. Yeah. And the GPL one is the one that's on every Linux thing ever. WordPress is uh, GPL. Right, right. Um, so these all have slight differences, obviously, and it can it can be a little daunting to decide, especially if you aren't familiar with software licensing, well, which, which one should I use? Um, mm-hmm. There's a website. It's called choosealicense.com. It's set up to kind of help you figure out, you know, which one it makes sense for what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. There are a couple other tools out there. If you If you Google the phrase, like, which software license should I be using or, or which software right. license should I choose? You'll get some other tools that will pop up in that. Um, the, the basics are relatively straightforward though. MIT is basically yeah. just a permissive license. Um, yeah. it's, it's a hold harmless license is what I call it. Um, but almost, I think all of these licenses, I think all of them are, are hereditary, meaning that if you use them, any derivative works, must also 
implicitly carry the same license. I believe you are correct, yes. Yeah. Um, so if I have an MIT license on a project and somebody makes it, and they all, too, I think, well, no, maybe the MIT doesn't um, require attribution. No, it does. Does it? it? Oh, well, I don't know about attribution, but it does require the license. Yeah, the license has to say, but I don't, I don't think yeah. attribution does with MIT. Um, yeah. You can do whatever you want with an MIT license, essentially, as long as it, you has the license. It, it It is the, I mean, and it's only like three paragraphs long. It's also probably the yeah. easiest to understand. It's just a general <laughs> permissive license that just says, hey, if you use this, you do it at your own risk. You know, you're not going to sue us for any damages it causes. Just, mm -hmm. But if you make anything based on it, you also have to keep the MIT license on it. Because um, the whole idea is, right, fostering open source you know and building right it, it right. does exactly what copyright is supposed to do in an <laughs> ideal world that's the insane right. part about it that's why copyright was supposed to be limited so that people right. could take that stuff and build on it and instead we've made copyright unlimited and we are bolting licenses on to take care of that it, that's a rant so for so that. something interesting i learned while looking up some of these things for the show notes was um the gpl differs from the lgpl the limited GPL, uh, in that the original GPL, you were not allowed to use the names of the, like, so if you make a derivative work of a GPL licensed product, you have to include the GPL in it, but you're not allowed to explicitly name the authors of the people you sourced from without their express consent. So, and the reason why was because if some famous person writes a GPL thing, and then you write a derivative of it, you can't use their name to like embellish your own product. Oh, the LGPL says the LGPL says that, that that does away with that clause. Huh. So Yeah. That's in I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> I, me neither. I learned that yeah. today. <laughs> and and uh, as we've said, we're not lawyers and there right. are we are gonna make mistakes with this and the, these lies like the GPL license, it's if you pull up the the text of it, it's size long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um WordPress is GPL, we mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting side effect, because, of course, WordPress is open source. It's, it's free, but people have paid themes. They have paid plugins. Mm -hmm. But that's why you have all these plugin resellers. Right. Because they will go buy a premium plugin, a premium theme once, put it in their repo, and then resell it. Because it's still GPL'd code. It's still freely distri yeah. distributable. You can charge for it if you can get somebody to pay you for yeah. it. Yeah. But it can be distributed freely. The, the GPL says that you have to have instructions in the license or in the product somewhere that say where you can get the source product for free, even if you're charging. So, But you can charge. Yeah, but you, you can charge for that stuff. There's no... Nothing stopping that. And that's true for any of these, actually. Well, wait, no, Apache yeah. is totally non-commercial, I think, isn't it? Right. Uh, uh, I, yeah, non-commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Apache would be the exception there. If it's Apache license, it does have to be um, given and, away. And the BSD is the opposite of the GPL in that you're, not a, uh, you're prohibited from referencing parent work without... Oh, maybe that was the one. Uh, that may have been the one that had the weird authorship thing. Uh-oh. I might be mistaken correcting that. Oops. <laughs> well, we'll let the audience correct you on that one. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> the, the, what I tell people is, I generally start at the MIT license, 
and then I get a different one when I decide I need it. Because, you know, if I'm writing a, a plugin for something or anything like that, um, outside of WordPress, which requires your code to be GPL licensed, um, I I don't care what happens to it once it's out in the wild, frankly. Um, hell, the yeah. stuff I write isn't used enough for me to really care. It's not something I'm going to make money on. And if somebody can take it and build it and make it better, I want them to be able to do that. Um, if you want to retain full and absolute control, then you really aren't building an open source project, are you? Right. <laughs> Okay, just for the record, the BSD one is the one that prohibits exp that we have to get express permission from the offers before you derive from it, and the new BSD version removes that prohibition. The LGPL just does not replicate into derivatives implicitly. Oh, okay. so it's limited to just the thing that you publish. It doesn't carry on. Yeah, so you could okay. make something new and then apply a different license to it if you just so read the show notes. We have stuff in there about it. Now, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, changing software licenses. Um, so like with LGPL, if you were going to have a derivative and use a different license mm -hmm. on that, that's one thing. But like if you had something under MIT and then you decided you wanted to change that. Yeah. Can you do that? Can you change licenses? So, so if you own the code, if it's your project, it doesn't matter. You can relicense something however you want to. Um, okay. And, and the same goes, like, if you are a software company and you are selling a closed source project, obviously, you can mm. rework your license however you see fit. It gets a little more gnarly, though, if you are an open source project, and particularly if you have taken contributions, if you relicense that code... Right. And this is where, like, the whole contributor-level agreements and stuff like that can kind of simplify things for you. You can get yourself into trouble because you technically have to get contributors' permission to redistribute to their code. Because their code was oh. distributed under your original license. If you change that, you have unilaterally changed the terms of the agreement that they it, – it, huh. it would be like any contract law at that point. If you change yeah. the terms unilaterally, that contract is no longer enforceable. The thing that's crazy about that is it, if someone submits a PR for something that you could have done, like it wasn't something that was computationally hard to figure out, but they happened to spend the hours on doing that collaboratively. And then they, you know, poison pill it or whatever. If you could have recreated that, like, that, that man... That's a weird situation to be in. Yeah. It, it's not one that comes up frequently. I can't think off the top of my head of yeah. like a, a project I've helped with or, or been a part of, or even a tool that I have used that has come out and been like, oh, by the way, we changed the license. Because yeah. like a lot of what I do is WordPress related. Well, that's that's GPL. That's just what it is. Um, and that's yeah. not going to change uh, ever. Um, so... I think just generally speaking, like, don't be a dick. Like, if you're contributing to an open source project, like, embrace that and don't be shitty about it. <laughs> well, and, you know, it doesn't hurt, too, to say, you know, if you're contributing as a as somebody to a, an open source project that you don't control and you make that first pull request and there isn't a CLA, add one. Yeah. Yeah, it's open source. That's a good, that's a good call. You're, you're yeah. making a pull request. Throw one in there. Make sure there's a comment on why you're adding it. And even if right. you only add it for the sake of saying, you know, I'm going to put this in the comments or something just as mm. verification that I am granting you the right to, to use my code, 
even if they choose yeah. not to include that for the rest of their project or something, there's at least a paper trail and a record of your commitment and your agreement to let them use that code. Um, right. It's, right. it sounds like extra work. It sounds like a lot of, of, uh, you know, o- over cautiousness, I guess, but mm-hmm. do enough business. And oh, the cost of over cautiousness is well outweighed by the benefits that you get from it because it only takes <laughs> cop- one lawsuit to make it all worthwhile. Just write it once and then copy paste. Right. Yeah, Just, or submit it as a like a uh, markdown file into the repo. And uh, SAP, they have, and I think we'll have that in the show notes. If I don't have it already in the list, I'll make sure to grab it. Uh, they have like a CLA generator that <laughs> will automatically they'll it'll tie into your GitHub and it'll just add that. It'll add that onto your oh. uh, uh, your repo. So. That's cool. That yeah, there's no extra work on your end then on top of it. So that's something else to maybe consider uh looking into. Cool. So that's what we got, I think, for this week. What uh what licenses do you prefer? What do you use the most? Uh, I'd like to know that too. What yeah, what what is your go to license? You know, if you're a WordPress dev, obviously that's gonna be GPL, but what about other stuff? Do you do jQuery plugins? Do you because that that I don't think requires anything special. Uh, do you, or the question do you even know what license they're using or is it just like clicking the itunes agreement that like yeah okay whatever but a lot of <laughs> folks like if you go to html5up.net um they've got mm-hmm. a lot of like uh html5 themes just they're mm-hmm. just html themes they're not made for anything they're just raw html type themes but they've they have released that all i think it's under a uh uh, a no light a zero a cc zero license if i remember right which is hmm. the the equivalent of a public domain license nice um under creative commons cool. that makes the internet a better place i think i I, th- I think i'm a big fan of it myself yeah um oh no it is i'm sorry it's a creative commons attribution license so but it, okay. it's creative commons though so you go in and you know I just have to say that I got this theme from HTML5 up. And what's the big deal in that, you know? Yeah. Uh, Put it in the comments but, or something. So that's a good okay. example that I'd mentioned earlier of, you know, you don't see a lot of Creative Commons use in web development uh, for the code side of things, but that's something that HTML5 up is uh, yeah. is using Creative Commons. So if you, good fit if you wonder what it looks like, yeah. There was somebody once, and I'll see if I can find it between now and when the show airs, that, um, like, scanned... Uh, github repos to see like what the usage was of different licenses that would be an interesting uh, thing to throw in there too but yeah let us know uh and let us know if we screwed anything up i'm sure that we we misspoke (laughs) on something here so um i don't want us to be coming off like we are absolutely experts on this this is more you know our experience as grunts so to speak um so right take it as such please take it as such um in our defense, we're also drinking. We're also drinking. But that's why you're here, really, I think. Uh, right. <laughs> be sure to tune in to the next episode of Strategy Car, where I hear there are two just incredibly handsome gentlemen who were guests on that episode. Um, you can <laughs> check that out at strategycar.com. They're also on iTunes and, and uh, Google Play and all that. Um, but that should be coming up in the next month, I believe. So we talk about UX. We, well, we sort of talk about UX um, in a very non-UXy bit. way. We talk about cookies 
also. But yeah, but check out Strategy Car. Um, they will. Uh, Elena Wines is the uh, the host of that show, and it's it's excellent. It's uh, something that she's getting started off the ground based on a whole system of chat and and community work that uh, was going on long before that. So. We, we've both known her a long time. She's good people, and she makes good content. Good people. Well, you may have heard her on the little Red Strategy Car episode. Oh, right. Yeah, she was on our last, last episode. Last week. Or last day. Yeah, last episode, yeah. as a matter of fact. So there you so go. So you, you know her, too, now. We're all friends. We all know each other. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com drunkenux. That's nucloud.com drunkenux. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, two weeks on Drunken UX. Uh, we are reachable on the Facebooks and the Twitters slash Drunken UX. And also check us out on Slack. Come chat with us. Let us know about your license preferences and if you even know which licenses you're working under on uh, drunkenux.com slash Slack. And let us know if you're listening to us on iHeartRadio because hell, I don't if know. If you are... Yeah, if you if you are into iHeartRadio, please tell us why you like it. I am happy to try something new out. If you think it's awesome, I will check it out. I have I have feelings about Spotify. We almost talked about them this week, but I couldn't come up with enough feelings about Spotify <laughs> to fill an episode. <laughs> Be sure to tune in on Wednesday. We will have a new episode of Real Time Overview coming to you with a roundup of news articles, web articles tech articles that sort of thing that is interesting i will also be at the web accessibility summit in columbia missouri on wednesday if any of our listeners are out and about and want to stop by and say hi by all means uh, i will be more than happy to sit down and talk to you and have a little chat and and show you what we got up there um otherwise i only got one piece of advice for you from here on out and that's just (laughs) to keep your personas close and your users closer